0: Hello, tennis family. Welcome back and happy grass court season. We're going to jump right into today's show because there's so much to cover. And we have a very fun and juicy chat later with the princess of Wimbledon 1999, Alexander Stevenson. But first, I want to bring out a huge tennis fan that also happens to be a friend. He's also a coach. He's a great player in his own right. And he has hands down the most vibrant and enthusiastic and entertaining tennis Instagram and YouTube channel that you're ever going to find. You got to go check it out today at Coach B TV coming in hot from the court right after a lesson in Los Angeles, California. It's my buddy Brian Bradley. Hey, Bri, what's up? Hey, John. Oh, my gosh. I am just living for this moment being on your show. Yes. Thanks for joining. We've been talking about this for a long time. So I'm glad you uh, you finally made it on. How was the lesson, by the way?
1: It's good. I'm sweating. I am sweating. The sun is now out in LA. Hallelujah.
0: Actually, we just got the warning of the the Canadian fire smog that's coming again. So you know, we have we can't go outside and play. So I'm living vicariously through you today and your tennis lesson. So I'm super happy. (laughs) Super excited. I want to say I don't think the adjectives at the start of the show really kind of picked up the essence of your tennis Instagram and your YouTube channel because your latest post is so over the top. Everyone, you have to go out and look at this at CoachBTV right now. You, You have to. You wrote a song about the grass court season, Brian, and it's like, who other than a WTA super fan can authentically rhyme a song about strawberries and cream and Sabalenka screams? I mean, come on, it's so good. Can you describe your YouTube channel to everyone that has no idea who you are out there. What, what, are, what are we missing if we're not looking at Coach BTV's YouTube channel? Wow.
1: Well, that is very kind of you, sis. <laughs> uh,
0: <laughs> um, I don't know how
1: to beat that, but I'll paraphrase it with a little tagline kind of that I made up uh, for the channel, for the Coach BTV channel. So I call it high octane queer commentainment, commentating and entertainment, <laughs> with a dash of song and dance. Okay, so kind of what I'm giving you. It's definitely
0: a lot of that. You know, there's so much. It's like out there and it's different, you know, and I appreciate it. And there's nothing like that out there. You know, if you need like a cool Instagram channel and you need a smile and you want to hear people rhyming about Marion Bartoli, then you jump on to, <laughs> to your Instagram and your YouTube channel. All right, we don't have a lot of time today. So yes, go check it out. It's absolutely hilarious. We have as little of time as the actual grass court season, which I think is a travesty. Give me an extra week, damn it. I need another, you know, week of rain delays and British wildcards and non-white tennis outfits on the grass. I mean, I crave it. So hopefully next year we can keep expanding. But um, let's go through a couple highlights so far from the grass court events this season. We'll start with the men. Let's give virtual high fives to start out the show to Francis Tiafo for winning on the grass in Stuttgart. At the boss open the best name for a tournament that i've seen in a long time who doesn't want to win the boss open right that's kind of fun <laughs> not only uh is he now at a career high of world number nine he won his third title and the us now have two american men in the top 10 for the first time since 2012. pretty damn cool he's such an inspiration he really is to so young kids everywhere and he's such a great personality especially for the atp tour because they're full of problematic players. So their PR team is a nightmare. So thankfully, Francis is here to save the day. I know you love Francis too, Brian. What was your feeling from that run in Stuttgart?
1: I mean, it was overjoyed, you know. He's got to be my top three right now on the guy's side. Love him so much and his talent and his heart. Believe you me, I was... I was sob city watching his episode on Breakpoint uh, just the other day.
0: Oh, have you caught up? I haven't got. I haven't got to second half yet. Now I need to get. I need to jump right in. I'm waiting for like maybe the weekend where I can binge it. But yeah, so there's a there's a good moment for Francis.
1: Oh my god, yes, he's such a protagonist. You know what I mean. So maybe it's maybe he can do
0: the whole thing at Wimbledon. Wow, that that would be amazing if he did. I mean, the odds have him pretty low. I think. Milos Raonic has better odds than Francis Tiafoe this week. Also for the men, we saw Alcaraz win his first ever title on grass at Queen's Club. Speaking of favorites, which bodes well now for his challenge to Novak for his first Wimbledon title. I'm not going to give any predictions yet because I'm going to ask you, but I'm steering that way. And I do want to mention really quickly before we move on uh to your predictions I'm still pissed off at Feliciano Lopez right now Brian I I'm, I really am I'm still having that negative taste in my mouth after that disastrous Madrid open with the birthday cake and the ladies doubles finals but I will say at 41 years old he won a couple matches in Mallorca he made the quarterfinals and anytime we're getting wins with people in their 40s I celebrate I'm super excited about it right and who better than the awe-inspiring Venus Williams Let's talk women's tennis now because, I mean, she's leading the charge. She's looking great. She's playing great. She's in her 40s. This is an icon, right? Let's talk about Venus's fun run in Birmingham. Brian, 7-6 in the third. I don't know how we got any work done on that Monday when she played. I mean, I I was watching so intently. I was glued to my phone. Then the Ostapenko match. I mean, it it really ruined my whole work week.
1: I mean, I lost my voice and all my fingernails watching that match against Camila. Um, But I never lost hope. I can tell you that. This queen is obsessed with wellness and she will be well for these two weeks because she getting second week. Okay, calling it just saying.
0: Oh, you are? You think you think I'm calling it fourth round? Wow. That's a oh. big that's a big prediction right there. I really I'm excited by that. You know, maybe if we put out in the universe, it's like the secret, right? I'm into that. I thought Venus looked great. We were a little worried in her her Bosch opening grass court match. We thought, oh, okay. But you know what? She came back. She roared back. And that 7-6 in the third win against Georgie. And then the three-set rumble with Ostapenko, which really was great. I mean, there was some great tennis. Yeah, the movement. Okay, a little lackluster. Sure. You know, if Ostapenko is going to go for the open court, she's going to usually win those rallies. But really, really nice to see. And I was so excited. And I think she shut a lot of people up she's always going to have naysayers, any woman in their 40s. I didn't see one person talking about Feliciana Lopez right after winning his matches. But you know, of course, Venus has to hang it up. Absolutely horrible. But I thought it really boded well for her uh, grass court run in Wimbledon. So I hope you're right. I hope that uh, there is some, some life at the end of that Wimbledon tunnel. And somebody else who's had a lot of success, I do want to mention Petra Kvitova. Her run in Berlin was really great as well. It was fantastisch, her 31st title. And she's only second to Venus right now on the active players titles list. She has a ways to catch up, though. She has to catch up to Venus's 49 current titles, which wouldn't it be so great, Brian, if we could just will one more title, have Venus go out. With 50, right? That's all I want, right? That, that's all I think. That's all maybe she wants. I don't know. We'll see. That would be really cool. All right. I do want to talk briefly about Wimbledon. I do want your takes because anybody who's listening to your YouTube channel and your Instagram knows that you know what you're talking about when it comes to tennis. And I absolutely love getting to hear your takes. So let's talk Wimbledon real quick. One year ago, I was there today, like on this day, I was walking the hollowed halls of Wimbledon with my Pims cup in hand. So I'm, I'm feeling a little nervous nostalgic today so I'm glad we get to talk about it but um Brian who amongst the men I know we just briefly talked about Carlos we talked about Francis I mentioned Novak but we have Nick back we have Carlos Alcaraz maybe winning his first Wimbledon title of course this could be Andy Murray's last Wimbledon maybe a deep run is in the cards who's your winner prediction and dark horse on the men's side what are we thinking what are we feeling Give me the vibe.
1: Uh, Okay. I mean, if I really have to put money on it or, or, you know,
0: high stakes on... Street creds. No money. A cocktail or maybe just like, you know, some integrity. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, it's hard to
1: not bet on Djokovic just because of his sheer experience. But Alcaraz, come on, we haven't seen him succeed on the grass with his drop shots. Like, he can hang tight on the baseline. He can be low. He can, you know, hit people off the court. So, vamos, Carlitos. And then Kyrgios's knee, JG, I don't know if Nick is able to do what he did last year, honey, although I enjoy his storylines.
0: I mean, who doesn't enjoy the storylines? But uh, we're talking about problematic ATP players. Let's, you know, let's talk about it. But yeah, no, it's always fun to see Nick on the court. I think most people are going to say that. I'm going to go with you. I'm going to say Carlos Alcaraz leaves Wimbledon a first-time champion, and I'm really feeling good about a dark horse run for Sebastian Corda. I loved the way he played in London. That summer final against Carlos was really exciting. And I feel like it's time I think his game on grass is is going to be great. And um, yeah, I'm ready for a quarter breakthrough. I really am. So yeah, that's fun. Thanks for your takes on that. Let's talk ladies because that's where our heart lies always right. We always love some WT action. And for the ladies, it's so exciting this year. It's an open field. I really think it's really wide open. I don't know about you. But uh, who knows? Can Elena Rybakina repeat? Is it going to be Iga winning her first Wimbledon moment? Or maybe Petra Kvitova wins her third? Who knows? There's lots of storylines that can play out in the next couple of weeks. Brian, uh, prediction wise, let's talk about it. I want your Wimbledon take and I'm going to hold you to it. Where's your heart lying this year?
1: This one's tough because you, what I'm going to tell you right now is that it's going to be someone with who has never won a major will win this Wimbledon. I'm, I'm I'm coming at you strong headed today. It will be someone different. Could be. It gives me Alexandrova tea. Her serve is Domination. Oh. and when she's good, when the girls are too good on the day on grass, John. Yeah, these girls can do that seven times in a row on grass. Like. Yeah, Forget that you, these tall statuesque players, like they have such an edge because they can win it early. They can win mm-hmm. seven matches without like <gasps> heaving and hawing on the clay. You know, upset alert 2013 drama, girl we're manifesting of the gaggiest Wimbledon of all time.
0: I can't show you exactly what I wrote down, but I wrote the exact same thing. I said, my prediction is it's going to be a first time winner and my dark horse, it's also going to be a first time finalist. I really think this is going to be like... I don't know. Maybe a first time Wimbledon finalist. I mean, I, I don't know. It's wide open. I would love to see so many great names pop up there. Pagula is ready, right? I feel like it's um, it's her time too. Who knows? Who knows what's going to happen? I'm, I'm excited. Sabalenka on the grass too is always fantastic. We haven't seen her progress to that final round in, in Wimbledon yet. So yeah, I'm excited. I really am. I always get excited for a WTA Grand Slam, but um, there we go. We didn't really say a name. <laughs> We didn't really stick to anything, actually. We just went very random. We just said, oh, it's, you know, it's one of these 125 people that could win this tournament. (laughs) So yeah, we chickened out. It's fine. I'll take it. Speaking of Wimbledon, I mean, I'm glad you're here because I I do want to get to today's show. And I I think um, for me, it's always such a pleasure talking about the grass court season and talking about Wimbledon is a perfect segue into today's episode. We have former world number 18 and the first woman to come through qualifying to make the semifinals at Wimbledon in 1999, Alexander Stevenson i really have to give it to alexandra on this episode brian because she knows exactly how to give an interview there is no topic that she shied away from we talk about the crazy run in 99 we talk about what was really going off off the court and how she had to consult with a breathing coach from russia that didn't speak english and she had a shaman and like All these things that you just would love to hear what's really going on behind the scenes and she talks about it. We talk about her father, Julius Dr. J. Irving, one of the greatest basketball players of all time and what her relationship with him was. It was all over the press in the early 2000s. What I really love about this is that it's very nostalgic, of course, Alexander remembers everything. And there's some great stories about Steffi Graf. We talk about an hilarious story about playing doubles with Jennifer Capriati and a wild story that you got to hear about her title run with Serena Williams when she won a tournament in Leipzig. So yeah, I grew up watching Wimbledon every year. And this is like my favorite tournament that I can remember in 99, that Wimbledon. It was crazy. You had Lucic and, and Dokic and Hingis going out first round and Davenport winning her Wimbledon. And it was Steffi Graf's last Grand Slam. And you had all these great players. Kornikoba was playing Venus in the quarters. I mean, it's like all these names that are just so nostalgic. It was really great. But then you had Celis and Capriati and Pierce and Kim Clijsters was playing this tournament. So any WTA fan will love hearing this episode. We also get an update today as she's launched her broadcasting career, as we know, with ESPN. And of course, her new podcast, Serving Aces with Alexander Stevenson, which launched earlier this year. So uh, it's a, it's a good one today. Brian, thank you so much for stopping by. I had so much fun. It was brief. We're going to have you back again. We have so much to talk about. Today was way too short. I always love seeing you. I'm going to be out in Los Angeles in a couple of weeks. Hopefully we can hit. Hopefully we'll see each other.
1: Oh, girl, we got to do the hit and then the cocktail. OK,
0: and then we got to talk all the tenny, we honey. We're going to have so much Wimbledon talk to talk about. I mean, we're going to see we're going to play this back and we're going to see if those one hundred and twenty five players actually won. And we're going to say, wow, we really guessed one of those one hundred and twenty five players that won the tournament. <laughs> we're going to feel so proud of ourselves. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Please don't forget to check out Brian's YouTube channel and Instagram at CoachBTV. If you love tennis, and you also need a little fun and a little song and dance in your life, go check out his Instagram and his YouTube. As always, I appreciate you all listening. Please, if you have 45 seconds, leave us a fantastic review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really helps with getting the show out there. Enjoy Wimbledon, everybody. Please send me your thoughts on Instagram and Twitter over the next two weeks. And most of all, I hope you all enjoy getting to know Alexandra Stevenson. Please take your seats quickly, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you.
2: I mean, they always have a big mouth. They always talk a lot. So <laughs> it happened before it's going to happen again.
0: Our guest today had the entire sporting world mesmerized as she completely changed the landscape of the 1999 Wimbledon Championships by, as a qualifier, she would fearlessly battle her way onto center court and reach the semifinals in her main draw debut. As an over-19 sensation, she was quickly thrust into the tennis limelight, being awarded Rookie of the Year by Tennis Magazine, named as one of People Magazine's most fascinating people, she had her likeness featured in multiple video games, and she was even interviewed by the late great legend Barbara Walters for a primetime special. She'd make good on becoming a success, as she'd win a WTA doubles title with the GOAT, Serena Williams, and have career wins against numerous Grand Slam champions like Arancha Sanchez-Vicario, Conchita Martinez, Anastasia Moschina, and of course, her career best wins by defeating then world number one Jennifer Capriati, which helped her reach a career high ranking of number 18 in the world back in 2002. Numerous injuries and funding difficulties may have interfered with her rise to the top, but she remains active today in the sport that brought her name recognition at a very early age. Having spent the last few years working for ESPN for their Grand Slam coverage, She talks tennis for a living, and she's even launched a new tennis podcast called Serving Aces with Alexandra Stevenson for more tennis talk in 2023. Our guest today is the fantastic Alexandra Stevenson. Alexandra, welcome to Fantastic Tennis.
2: Thanks for having me, John. That was quite the opening. I
0: loved it. I know. It's so fun. You know, it's so fun when I have someone like you. We are kind of at the same age, so it's always fun to like go back and think. 80s babies. Yeah, 80s babies. Uh, and it's like, yeah, I, mean, I I lived it through with you. I feel like all the, it was so easy for me to write that intro because it's like, yeah, I know that. It's really great to see you. Um, we met a few years back during the pandemic. Yes. And now every U.S. Open, I know two things are going to happen. I know one I'm going to wave at you at the ESPN desk next to Arthur Ashe Stadium. I'm going to say hi, Alex. And two, I always know it's the start of the US Open because Alexander Stevenson is posting in a Cynthia Rowley dress. So that's how I know. It's like an annual tradition now. I love it. (laughs)
3: Love
2: it. Yeah. Well, I have to thank Cynthia Rowley for dressing me in New York and she's iconic fashion designer and she always lends me a hand with my clothes and Yes, U.S. Open is definitely Cynthia Raleigh Dresses.
0: It's your brand. You always look fantastic. I really think thank it's great. You. How are you? You look great.
2: Well, I'm doing well, thank you. I'm doing really good. It's been a uh, interesting last three years since I've, I think we spoke three years ago. Yeah, it's been a while. 2023, wow. 2020, COVID times. Still have paths I want to go down, just as you do, I'm sure. And I'm, I'm really happy to be here and to be speaking with you again.
0: Yeah, we're going to talk about a lot of things today. And we're going to jump into our tennis time machines together from 1999 all the way to 2023. But first, I do wonder, and you know, I don't want to put you on the spot, Alex, but we're at the midway point in the year right now. It's July. And it's time to start reflecting and seeing if our New Year's resolutions are really holding true to where we hope they'd be at the start of the year, right? I mean, I, I, <laughs> I had some pretty generic ones, but, um, you know, I want to see what yours were like. Did you have any New Year's resolutions to start out the year?
2: Well, I like to set goals. Okay. And I looked at my goals from last year and I got five out of seven. Okay. That was pretty good. I mean, one of them is The Holiday House, which is, have you seen the movie The Holiday?
0: Oh, oh The Holiday. Yes, of course. Kate Winslet.
2: Yeah, The Holiday. Yes, Cameron course. Diaz, yeah, yeah, Kate Winslet, Jack Black, Jude Law. I watch it every Christmas.
0: Oh, you went to The Holiday House.
2: No, I want The Holiday House. So you know Cameron Diaz's house?
0: Oh, you want to own The Holiday House.
2: No, <laughs> so every year I put down, hopefully get the ho- Like, get The Holiday House. Hey,
0: unattainable or not, if you put it out in the universe, maybe it happens. Who knows?
2: Exactly. So so that goal didn't come true, but that's okay. And then posting my own show, that's what I'd like to do in TV. I'll just let you know that goal, because that's still gonna be this year's goal. That didn't come true yet, but I'm getting closer. And the five other ones I got, so it was a good one. And that's a great. Yeah. And this year, you did mention Barbara Walters. Yes. I was I fortunate did. to be interviewed by her and She was just an amazing woman and her history and the pioneering she did for women in broadcasting and in journalism. And I remember when she interviewed me, she always said to never let anybody talk down to you Mm -hmm. and to always keep your own narrative. So my number one goal this year is to create my own narrative the way that I would like it to go instead of having other people write about it. And, you know, not many people are writing about me now, but just in the past, it's always been mm-hmm. what is written. And I would like to just kind of speak about my truth and journey.
0: I love that mindset. I really do. I think it's really, really important. And yeah, that's what we're going to do. We're going to talk so much today. I'm so excited. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I love it because since we're checking in on our New Year's resolutions from six months ago, my New Year's resolutions, I tend to be a little more generic. I'm always like, you know, I want to be a good person, you know, and then you you are a
2: good person.
0: I try to be, you know, you put it out there, you know, I want to, I want to pay it forward. I want to be a good human being. Those are things. But, but if I had to pick like a tangible goal and be a bit selfish with it. I, I said I wanted to play more tennis in 2023. And I also said I wanted to cook more, okay. right? I, I'm a terrible cook, but I'm going to cook. I don't think you can help me with the cooking but I can
2: help you with the tennis. I'm actually I'm not a very good cook either. My mother is a great cook. She thinks she's on a garden, <laughs> but I'm not a great, I can make really good eggs <laughs> with avocado and spinach. Oh,
0: okay. I I would eat that totally. So there we go. We'd be, we're a good pair. All right. <laughs> Okay, so we can't help each other with cooking, but I think you can help me with tennis advice. And since it's perfect timing that I'm sitting across right now from someone that actually has hit thousands of aces in her career, I should definitely ask our first question today, what's the best advice you have for our listeners? Someone, I don't know, maybe like me, I'll listen as well, who wants to fix their serve. What's like one thing that you would say obviously I'm looking at back to footage while I'm prepping for this interview and I'm seeing this amazing motion. I don't know how you got this motion, but you know, it was gifted to you. So what's like- A
3: lot of hard work. Well,
2: serving, I have been coaching some kids and I like to tell them, you can't order a serve from Amazon. (laughs) And you can't just get a serve. You have to work at it. And the number one thing I start off with is the toss. Okay. So if you have your toss in the right position mm. for all three first serves, now I said three first serves, right? Well, you could do four first serves, right? You go T, body, slice, and you could go a kick as a first serve. Oh. But the three main serves, the T serve, flat down the T, the body serve, the slice wide, you need one toss. If you have a different toss, it's really hard to hit your spots. And then for your second serve, you got to have it right above your head, Mm -hmm. like right at the, like you had a string pulling out in the middle of your head. That's where you want to get your kick serve toss to get enough kick on the ball. And then of course you got to rotate your hips for that, but it's all in the toss, John, in the beginning. That's number one thing. I
0: love it. We're getting free tennis advice from Alexander Stevenson today. (laughs) Are we thinking like, how many aces have we hit in your career? If you had a ballpark, if I had to give you a million dollars right now to guess exactly how many aces?
2: Well, I did have to end my career a little shorter during my shoulder surgery when I was serving the biggest. Um, Maybe... A couple hundred, no, I don't know, way that.
0: I'm gonna to have to we're gonna have to fact check that definitely in the thousands. Definitely, in the
2: thousands. are you counting pros or juniors? I mean,
0: you played for 23 years, you played math, oh, Game. like
2: my whole life. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, then
0: thousands. We're talking thousands, yeah. we're talking thousands.
2: And I still, I still hit aces exactly, exactly. Like that wide on the deuce side, best serve ever.
0: That's your favorite. <laughs> I love that serve. Priceless advice from Alexander Stevenson today. (laughs) We have a fun show because we have the princess of Wimbledon 1999, Alexander Stevenson here to walk us through a career that has had some big wins, a boatload of aces, and yes, definitely some crazy twists and turns along the way. Alexander, we're going to jump right into today's show and play 15 Love. I've compiled 15 of the most popular topics that tennis fans from all over the world want answers to. The topics range from the beginning of your career all the way to your life today. So let's dive right in and get to know Alexandra Winfield-Stevenson. Let's do this today. Oh, I like you got my
2: middle name in there. I wanted to change my middle name when I was younger. It's so
0: unique. It sounds like a soap opera name. I'm Alexandra Winfield-Stevenson, and I'm here to buy your company. That's what it sounds like.
2: And I'll tell you the little fact. It's because that Winfield is on my father's side and my mom wanted me to have a piece of who my father was in history. And so she thought Alexander Winfield Stevenson sounded right.
0: Definitely. I'm thinking it's like a Downton Abbey name too. It could be anything. Alexander, we always start with this first question and it gives me a point of reference. And I think we're very similar, as we said, we're, we're around the same age. So I, I'd love to know what was the first tennis match you remember watching live or on television?
2: That's a great question. I'm going to say the first match I remember was Martina Navratilova at Wimbledon and her serving volleying. And I ran and I think I was in the, our living room. We have one bedroom apartment, so I couldn't run far. But I think my mom was in the bedroom and I ran to the bedroom and I went, I'm going to do that one day. And I didn't say when, and I just said, I'm going to do that one day. And cause I just loved looking at the grass and watching Martina and her game and how mm. she's serving volley. And she was a lefty, but I don't think it's seven. I knew that. Yeah. So I remember her and I remember Steffi Graf Wimbledon and it was always at Wimbledon. It's so funny. I don't remember the U S open at all, which maybe I should have. And then I would have done better there. <laughs> <laughs> But I always had Wimbledon on, and then I guess Wimbledon and the British culture and England—I just loved watching the tradition. And I remember watching Martina serve and volley, mm. and saying I wanted to do that. And then I remember Steffi Graf holding the trophy. Such a good question, John. Oh
0: man, that's a great memory. All right, that's a good reference point to start. If I had to ask you to go as far back in your tennis memory as you can, I wonder. You have all these millions of kids throughout time that have wished they could have gotten as far as you got. And a lot of kids don't get there. So was there a moment that you said, oh, yeah, there's no turning back. Like, this is it. This is the moment that I'm going to be I'm going to be a pro tennis player. There's no stopping.
2: I never talked about being a professional tennis player. I used well, I used to run through the house saying fame. I'm going to live forever. And I wanted to be on Broadway. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I was a big musical theater aficionado. Still am. But I remember in second grade, our teacher told us to draw a picture that she took our picture and it was what we wanted our job to be. And there was another girl in my class that wrote professional tennis player down because she Mm. also played tennis and I wrote Wimbledon champion. That was what I wrote. I didn't, I wasn't thinking of a job. I was just thinking of Wimbledon champion. Now I didn't get to be Wimbledon champion. You never know. I'm not 50 yet. So maybe I have some years to try, but that was what I put in. I never really thought about professional tennis player. I was just thinking Wimbledon champion. And I didn't think of how to get there because I was just in second grade and enjoying Mm -hmm. tennis and I loved the grass at Wimbledon and that's what i had down as my job career
0: i love it so you manifested things even at an early age no you were doing it you're still doing it today that's great
2: well, i got close i got close and i do have i do have a medal you get you at least you get a medal to get to the semis you don't get the trophy because you don't win but they do give you a, a medal i didn't know
0: that yeah. i don't know if everyone listening out there that they knew that every semifinalist gets a medal hold
2: on one second. I second <laughs>
0: we're gonna see the medal yes. we're gonna see yes. the semifinal yes. medal i love it <laughs> that's so funny
2: very cool because i just got my storage I had all my stuff in storage for a couple years because I was kind of a on the road person. And that was one of my goals to get my storage. And so we got our storage and there is the medal.
0: Oh, wow. Very cool. I'm looking at.
2: Here, wait, here's the back. And it says, I can't,
0: I can't read it exactly. What does it say?
2: So it says the Lawn Tennis Championships. Ladies Singles Semi Finalist A Stevenson, 1999.
0: Very cool. That's so cool.
2: It has a tennis court in the back with the lady on the front holding. A world.
0: We're learning all the things today, guys. So we're already starting the show out with some some stuff I didn't know.
2: So you you gotta find out if they still give out the medal.
0: Oh, I can't wait. I'm on it. I'm sure. Please, somebody research this. I'd love to know if, uh, yeah. if this is still happening.
2: So I got a medal, and then I got a gold tennis shoe that Nike they cast it in gold because it was from mm. qualifying to the semis. The shoe that I wore. So I came away with something, right? Yeah,
0: exactly. Come on. And hey, you turned pro. We're gonna talk about Wimbledon in a bit. There's a lot that happened that Wimbledon. We're going to talk about your family tree as well a little bit later in the show. Maybe this is a better question for you know maybe maybe your mom really. But what stood out you think that made you someone obviously genetics aside because we know your family tree. But what do you think it was as as a kid that uh, that made you such a great junior? We're going to talk a little bit about you know you won the 1997 U.S. Open Junior Doubles title as well. You know you were such a great junior. Um, what was it you think that that really was the important ingredient that said, okay, Alex is going to be like such a great pro one day?
2: Well, I think the ingredient was, we never thought about being a great professional one day. Mm. Well, at least I didn't. My mom worked for World Tennis Magazine. You've heard of World Tennis, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. it It was the magazine in the 70s, 80s and early 90s. And she wrote a diary called Mother of a Pearl. And she did in her diary... It was all about bringing a daughter up in tennis. So she had plans, not for professional, but she saw me at Wimbledon. She wrote that in there that she saw me at Wimbledon. So I don't think she thought of like the professional tennis player part, but maybe that I would get to Wimbledon. But the goal was to get a college scholarship because my mom was a single parent. And I was raised in San Diego and college tuition was going to be very expensive. And the goal was to get educated, right? College came first. And the goal was to get a college scholarship for tennis. And so I had a choice between swimming, tennis, and I loved ballet, but I wasn't going to be a ballerina. I was too big. Mm. And so... I played soccer a little bit and I stopped at 10 because they started going for my shins.
0: Oh, it was tennis.
2: (laughs) Yeah, by 10, I, I really focused on tennis and then I kept my dance and theater to supplement to have fun plus school. And by nine, I got to the finals of my first tournament and that's kind of when we were all in and started playing tournaments. But the little side note to that, in 1990, when I was nine, Pete Sampras won the US Open as a 19 year old. And my mom was working for the New York Times. Her background was sports journalist. She covered the best football, baseball players of the eighties, nineties. And she would go do like background stories and personal interest stories. And so she was assigned Pete Sampras and she decided to do it on his background and how he was brought up. Mm -hmm. Well, his coach was Pete Fisher. And he was a doctor in LA and it was like a very interesting story because he wasn't a tennis coach. He was just, he was a brilliant neonatal specialist doctor who had helped Sampras through his whole junior career into winning the US Open, right? What a great story. Mm. So she drove me up to LA to go meet Pete and she asked Pete if he could see me hit and if I would be good enough to have a college scholarship if she was on the right path i had had good coaches in San Diego, Angel Lopez, Skip Redondo, and they really knew the core of tennis and gave great technique. And Ryan Redondo is now running Barnes Center, Skip's son, and he has two tournaments, by the way. Shout out to Ryan. He's done a great job. ATP and WTA tournaments mm. now in San Diego. And so anyway, we drove up to LA at 9, and Pete took me out on the court. And my mom goes, well, do you think she could – get a college scholarship at a top college and he goes no my mom's like what and he goes no she could be number one and win Wimbledon wow and my mom's like what are you crazy like she's nine and he's like no and I'll coach her if you're willing to drive three days a week to LA (laughs) and we lived in San Diego And so my mom said, really, I think we need to discuss this. And he's like, no, I'm not kidding, but you'd have to switch. I had a two handed backhand and he goes, you will have to switch her backhand to a one hand. Wow. You'll have to go to Robert Landstorp and you'll have to go to Dell Little. Well, Dell Little was known for footwork and he had coached Tracy Austin and he gave her her footwork and he was known in the South Bay area. And Robert Landstorp has had four number ones. And number one juniors go down the list and top tenors and top 20. Yeah. And most of all from Southern Cal, a Russian here or there thrown in. and when, But before that, they were all Southern California. I mean, and iconic, great.
0: legendary. And so
2: my mom was like, okay, well, let me go think about this. So she thought about it and she's like, Okay, we can do this. So at nine, I started driving Monday, Wednesday, Friday to LA after school, two hours a day, would get out, have my lesson for an hour to two hours. Mostly it was two hours because we drive up for two hours, have the lesson for two hours, then I'd get back in the car, do my homework, eat dinner, drive back, go to school. And Tuesday, Thursday, I would do ballet. And then Friday was my big day. I'd have Robert first. Because you'd always want Robert Landstart first because he was tough. And then I'd have Dell Little for footwork. And then I'd do Pete for serving at the end. And then on the weekends, I'd play tournaments. That was my life, nine to 18.
0: That dedication is unreal. That is, I mean,
2: and I went to private school the whole time I was a kid, but very disciplined. Monday, Wednesday, Friday, that was my tennis after school. And on the weekends, I didn't go out with friends and go to the mall, I was playing tournaments.
0: Well, for topic two, I want to talk about your early years on the tour, because obviously hearing how this foundation started for your tennis career is fascinating. The dedication driving hours and hours a week to, to to make this happen is it's no surprise that you were such a great junior. You'd end up winning the USCA national 18 doubles title in 1997, as well as the US Open junior doubles title, both with Marissa Irvin, who got to the top 50 herself. The USTA had high hopes for you. A lot of people had high hopes for you. You were
2: oh, 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 back up on that. USTA was not in my corner. Well, let's
0: talk about that because
2: (laughs) I was never the chosen one. Not
0: in the beginning, for sure. Not at all. I mean,
2: no, they came on the bandwagon Mm -hmm. after Wimbledon. There we go. Lynn Raleigh was always in my corner, but she always had to fight to help me. And she was the director of women's tennis for years. Until they kind of ousted her and, you know, did not a nice thing to her. She's a great person. And she helped Lindsay Davenport. Oh, yeah.
0: She's legendary. Yeah.
2: Jennifer Capriati. Yeah, yeah, she's a legend in her own right. And she always made sure that I got some kind of help a little bit. It wasn't always a lot. They were always picking other girls instead of me because mm. I had a one hand backhand and I had a different game. But Lynn saw that and she saw my serve. And so she would always kind of take me aside and work with me here and there and I was on the national team by the time I was 14 or 15 so then they started but in the beginning no they were like whatever mm.
0: well I mean the, the <laughs> talent was uh like let's just say if it wasn't from the USA, it was from a lot of other people as well because by 1996 you'd get a wild card into Indian Wells to make your debut on on the senior yes, tour.
2: at 15 and I wasn't supposed to be in there Charlie Passarell, who was the Indian Wells, he was the tournament director for years. He gave me the wild card. And, and that was when I played my first professional that really knew how to call the trainer and throw me off.
0: Oh, <laughs> that was your first match? Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, I learned about medical timeouts and sometimes they're used as games gamesmanship
0: weapons. I think mm-hmm. I was at 4
2: 1 or 5 1 in the first set against Saomatsu. Yeah. Something flew in her eye. I don't know what <laughs> we weren't in Australia with flies, but Indian Wells, maybe there were flies there. I doubt it. Something flew in her eye. She freaked out, called the trainer, wow. totally iced me and I lost like five straight games. And then I, I think I lost him two sets. I don't know. You'd have to check the score, but I was iced and then that was it.
0: It's so interesting. I know, but the, the point really is really because they're not giving wild cards, to Indian Wells, just to anybody. You were a successful junior. You're winning titles. I mean, you're winning national titles. Those early years on on the pro tour, we're talking before Wimbledon 99, Those the 96 to 99 years. What were those early years like on tour career?
2: I was always playing an, an age group older than I was. Mm-hmm. I never played in my same age group because Pete Fisher always wanted me to play up to play the bigger players with the bigger balls. And yes, that takes pressure off of you, but I never looked at tennis as I have pressure on myself. I looked at tennis as I love the game and it's for love of the game, right? That's why you play. You don't play to make money and chase points. You play because you love the game. And so I always love the game. And that's why when I would come into big circumstances and I'd be on a big court, it was an opportunity for me to perform. Mm -hmm. Look, I love theater. So why wouldn't I love a big tennis court in a big situation, right? And that's when you know you're a great athlete is when you can take that situation and not be nervous or maybe be nervous for like, a minute and then you just let your training and you let the fun take over of playing tennis and getting to show off your shots
0: yeah there was such a ramp up though because you're you're such a successful junior you're starting to play pro tournaments we're talking you know you start in 96 you're playing events in 97 98 99 comes let's talk about 1999 we're on topic three now because you know you hadn't been on tour for very long You'd start playing the 1999 season and you'd play some big names to start out the season. You, you played Venus in Oklahoma. You played Hingis in Indian Wells that year, Dementieva in Miami. So you're playing, like you said, you have the big matches. You're on the show courts. You're. you're... Did
2: I, play? I played Miami. I can't remember. Gee, that's yeah. some good research. Yeah. You're playing
0: some big <laughs> matches that I year. I
2: remember playing Dementieva. That's funny. I remember playing Venus because Venus and I played in the juniors, even though okay. they never showed that in the movie, but that's okay. <laughs> Anyway, I have a picture <laughs> of us in the finals and she would always beat me. And you know, she didn't stay for long, but she would always beat me in the finals. And it was just so annoying. Yeah. But she was better and she was taller and she was bigger. And I just she would beat me and it was close, but she would win. It was like seven, five, six, four. It was always close. And so then Oklahoma City, it was still close again. It was like seven, five, seven, five, or something. Yeah, it, was a, it was a close yeah, match. Yeah. Yeah, we always had close ones and she she won but it's all right. <laughs> I still love Venus. <laughs> yeah, I remember all the matches against her.
0: I mean, Venus, hello, icon, starting the year in Auckland, winning a match, barely losing to Zulin in that second match. And then the way she played on grass in Birmingham. I mean, come on. I'm just so excited that they gave her a wild card to Wimbledon this year. So deserved. I mean, we'll see. I, she she had played some great matches in Birmingham, you know. I hope that she carries the momentum. She's playing some good tennis and and showing people that yeah, you're playing for the love of the game, right? You're playing because you love the sport. You don't care about the results necessarily. Of course, I mean, it's Venus Williams. Of course she cares, but few you know the grass better at Wimbledon than Venus Williams.
2: Yeah, she loves it. And uh, hey, and everybody that says why is she playing? They all need to shut Shut up because (laughs) she loves the game and she can play. And if I could get out there and play and have her financial background right now, I would be doing the same thing. Exactly. And I bet if you ask Serena, she still wants to go play. Of course.
0: (laughs) Of course. It's the love
2: of the game, right? Yeah. And the age thing, who cares? Age is just a number. If you stay healthy and fit, you can play until you're 50. Look at Martina Navratilova.
0: There you go exactly yeah so we're we're 99 talking you know we're i think it was so fascinating because you're you're new on the tour you're playing these big matches Mm -hmm. and you hadn't won the big match yet right you're still playing you're ramping up then we get to the grass of 99 and here we go we're on
2: and i was still in high school by the way the whole year
0: exactly yeah you're balancing you know you're doing everything you can to be a pro player at that point you hadn't even turned pro yet and you go to Birmingham. You made the quarterfinals there, and there was a lot of momentum for you on the grass. And then we get to Wimbledon 1999. Now, this is an entire show in itself. We can talk about (laughs) that because who knew your entire life was about to change in these next two weeks? So let's talk about it. But before we talk about Wimbledon 99 with you, I'd love to know your opinion on this because I've said this about 10 times on this show right now. And now that you're here, I feel like you've given me a perfect opportunity to Talk about it. I'm going to jump on my on my soapbox, my WTA soapbox, and I'm going to say something, I guess, controversial? Maybe not. Maybe not controversial. Opinionated, for sure. I, I, my it's opinion- all right <laughs>
2: to be controversial, right? It can't be boring.
0: I know we we're entering our 50th year of, of WTA tennis, but I have to say, Wimbledon 1999, for me, is my favorite Grand Slam of the past 30 years. And I've said it numerous times, because it was like this quintessential changing of the guards in women's tennis. I feel like that entire two weeks because it was the beginning of Big Babe Tennis, and it was these tennis teenagers versus these established veterans, and I loved it. We had Steffi Graf making the final in her last Grand Slam appearance, Lindsay Davenport being... Boss mode, Lindsay Davenport, and helping usher in the start of big bay tennis. We had a young Kim Clijsters in qualifying, making the fourth round, doing splits on grass. A dominant Hingis being upset in the first round by Elena Dokić. Venus Williams was in the mix, beating Anna kornikova in the fourth round, and then nearly beating Steffi Graf in the quarters. It was magical. But you also had novatna and Pierce and Arantia and Capriati, Celis, Mary Joe, Tamarine Tanasugarn on grass. Tamarine Tanasugarn on grass was like legend. I mean, come on. And then of course. The storybook, Alexander Stevenson's run, you're only missing Serena, who'd go on to win the U.S. Open, like the next tournament. So like, we're of course, maybe we're missing a little bit there.
2: (laughs) You can't forget Lisa Raymond. She was in. Of course.
0: I mean, we're going to talk about that match in a second. That's my favorite match from that whole tournament. All right. I'm off my soapbox. I could talk about Wimbledon 99 for hours.
2: When you named all those players, it's pretty amazing that generation of players right now. You look at all those names and. There's just no words sometimes because you watch women's tennis now and you go, where is everybody? I know. But we just need more people like that.
0: We had them all. They were all at Wimbledon 1999 minus Serena. So do you agree with the rant? I mean, you just said you feel like, did you feel being at that tournament? There was like this teenage revolution, this big babe tennis that was happening right now, because of course you have Steffi Graf, and you mentioned watching Steffi as a kid. So obviously you're, You're like, wow, I'm at the same tournament as Steffi Graf. Like, this is very cool.
2: Well, before the tournament, backing up to Birmingham. Yeah, let's talk Birmingham. All the teenagers were in Birmingham, right? So Hantakova, Clysters, myself, Dokic. There were a couple other ones. Marissa Irvin was there. We were all starting out and qualifying. And so that was kind of like you started to know... As an American, you started to meet the Europeans and see who they are because I didn't really play a lot of ITF juniors because I was in school. So I didn't know the international set. Mm. So that was kind of where you, you really saw them all. And then the battle in Birmingham, I pulled my stomach muscle. So that was... Upsetting, but oh, you forgot Natalie toziat who was amazing on grass. So great, and that's who I had to retire to in the quarters, and she was really nervous to play me because I was like dunking my serves and no pun intended <laughs> on the wet grass in Birmingham. But that era of tennis, and Lindsay was a little bit older than us, and she was already playing big hitting tennis. And then you had Monica Sellis, mm-hmm. and Monica never liked the grass. I still think she could have played really well on it, but it just didn't translate to her game in time. And then you had Jennifer and then Steffi Graf. So in 98. This was not in 99. So this was in 98, my first time over there on the grass as a junior and under 21. I was playing in that. And one day I went in the locker room, and who was in there but now Stephanie Graf? But Steffi Graf at the time. And she came up to me and she goes, hi, you're Alexandra. Right. And I said, wow. yes. And she goes, you're Alexandra. I've heard you're good. And she goes, just be careful on the tour and make sure you stay grounded and have the right people around you. And you'll be just fine.
0: Hello. Steffi Graf's giving you advice. I love this. Oh my gosh.
2: Yeah. She gave me advice. And I was just like, oh, thank you. So that was in 98.
0: I think it's, you know, it's really fascinating too. I love the advice story, but you know, you're playing Birmingham, you're playing so well in the grass. You see your number one seed in qualifying at Wimbledon.
2: No, no, I didn't see it. I never looked at the draw. Yeah. After I qualified, they told me I was seeded one. Because <laughs> literally I never looked at draws. I just never did it. And I know Serena said the same thing. And maybe it's our generation. You just don't want to, you just want to know who you're playing. Hmm. You don't want to look at the whole draw because then that adds your brain and that's not good pressure right to have all these players in your brain you just need one player who you're going to play move on to the next and so when I qualified into Wimbledon and I played some tough players I played Sandra Kasich who was she was a good American player I played her I can't remember the other two I apologize but I remember playing Sandra Kasich and I had a stomach pull. So I had to go through qualifying with my stomach tape mm. and I had to half serve on Roehampton Grass, which now Roehampton Grass is lovely and the yeah. BBC even covers qualifying. Back then, Roehampton Grass was like cricket field, funny bounces, roots in the ground. It's still at the Bank of England, but they've totally manicured it now. It's a bit better. But back then it was, you had to be on point. Wow! And so I got my, the physical therapists, the trainers, the physios, as we call them on the tour are just so amazing that they were able to tape my stomach down and I could play. And then I kept letting it heal. And I had a Russian breathing doctor from San Diego that I would sit on the phone with after I'd played and do breathing exercises for like 30 really? minutes. Really? Yeah. He was an ex-USSR oh wrestling gold medal coach. And my mom had found him Oh my gosh. and he couldn't speak English.
0: <laughs> but he knew how to breathe. But breathing is universal.
2: <laughs> he knew how- exactly. And he'd like speak to me in Russian. And then he'd go, da, da, da. And then when he'd say da, I knew like to breathe in. And we'd go, ah, and like wow. stand up and do squats and I'd be breathing. And it worked.
0: Alex, that story is insane right? These are the stories that you just never hear about anything to better the mind and the body. I mean, it's amazing. A Russian breathing coach. Love it. Well, we're jumping in our (laughs) tennis time machine because we're blasting Living Levita Loca by Ricky Martin. It's 1999. We're heading back to the start of Wimbledon. Alexander, looking back after all these years, I mean, it's like you said, you're gaining momentum. You're on the grass. You hurt yourself. Mm-hmm. And then round by round, I mean, you keep healing. You keep playing better. The press continue to follow you. You beat the number 11 seed Julie Allard in the third round. Yeah, A huge win for you. There was tons of media interest after that match. Then you'd have a crazy match. Let's talk about this fourth round match against Lisa Raymond, who I love. We've had on the show. We've talked about this match on the show.
2: Yep. he still remembers that match.
0: Of course. It was a thriller. I mean, we're talking match points.
2: But you know what? I remember that the, she got the tournament win in Memphis over me. Seven, six in the third. Well,
0: that's later, right?
2: <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> like, later. But I could have won my first tournament and Lisa didn't let me do it. She still was upset over Wimbledon. Yeah, you
0: got the good one.
2: Yeah, that's what she tells me. You got Wimbledon. I'm like, but you won the tournament.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you would have traded that match. I don't I don't think so. So I think if we had to pick one and one. Let's talk about the quarters though. You know, okay. you beat Elena Dokic in the battle of the teenagers. Everyone was talking about you both that entire two weeks. It was a storied week for you. What do you remember from that Dokić match? Was there some pressure going in there after her big first round match?
2: You know, cause Dokich was the star basically of Wimbledon cause she beat Hingis. So I was still mm-hmm. kind exactly. of under the radar until the third round. And after the first round, you know, Dokich had Yelena had the agent. She she was already the professional tennis player, right? She had all the background of the support team. And she took out Martina. And I remember Martina was in an argument with her mother and was like pouting. And that was news. And the British tabloids love that. And then Yelena took her out because Elena could hit hard through that grass.
0: Yeah, she wasn't messing around.
2: Nope, she didn't mess around. And at the same time, Mariana Lucich, we forgot about her. Exactly. Another teenager, got a wild card because she was IMG. And they got her in on a wild card and she was making a run. And so there are all these little runs. And I was kind of under the radar as the qualifier. Nike had cut me two months before. Wow. And so that wasn't any good. And so I had no clothes and no shoes. Mm. So I was in an L dress from L magazine. I went and bought it at John Lloyd tennis club. We used to practice indoors there and I bought it off the rack and I had to ask Adidas to have some shoes because I borrowed... At the time, the USTA did lend me Craig Carden. And Craig Carden is, he's a story coach. He's traveled travel to Martina Navarro. So he knew his grass, right? But before that, when I qualified in, we went over to Wimbledon. And Craig took me to every single court. And we ran around Wimbledon before people were in there. And I looked at every court and we ended at center court. And we sat at every court.
0: Really? Was that just to kind of manifest and just to feel it, like, like so it's not a, a new thing when you get on the court? Oh. Yeah,
2: to have like to feel it. And he was really smart to do that. And so we had fun, and we were running around and just sitting in a seat and looking at. It. And then we ended on center court, and we touched the grass. Don't tell them, but we did. I, I've
0: done it too. I've done it too. I, I won't tell anyone. Yeah,
2: you have, to, you have to touch the grass, right? So we did that before, and then. The tournament started, but before the tournament started as well, there were a couple days after qualifying when you got to practice at Orangi. And Craig was a professional coach, right? So he organized practices. So I practiced with Julie Halard Diguji, And this is before the draw came out. And Mariana Lucic and I hit with Venus a couple of times. So I had really good practice And I played practice sets against Mariana and Julie. And so Julie knew. She was really upset when the draw came out because we had practiced and she was worried. So into that third round, I knew I had a slight edge because I had a bigger serve and she was French and she would be a smart player, but I felt like on the grass I could take her. And in the first round, I have to go back, I played Olga Barabanchnikova, who was like the new... Anna Kornikova.
0: Yeah, she was great. She was yeah. the
2: hottest Bella rush. She was. She was the hottest one. Yeah. And all the agents were out like everybody loved her. She'd wear those little white booty shorts, blonde, you know, that was the look. The booty shorts and the blondes were in. It's changed since then. But yeah. <laughs> it's changed, thankfully. Brown skin yeah. big butts were not in at that time, John. <laughs> so now we are since J-Lo. But anyway. Um, so I had her first round, which was a tough match, even though she wasn't seeing it, She was a good player. And then Amy Frazier was the stalwart. Oh, yeah. She knew how to play on grass.
0: Yeah. Don't mess with Amy Frazier.
2: So I had tough rounds. And then the third round was kind of the easier one because Julie was nervous and I just took advantage of it. So I did that. And then Lisa Raymond, the next match was on a side court, court four. She was taking me out. I'm sure she told you about it. And she had a, I think it was a backhand volley. Oh, for sure. It was an easy close and she didn't do it. And I hit a running for down the line. And just like that, the momentum shifted.
0: It shifts. That's a tennis match. I mean, that, and yeah. it's history. I mean, it was meant to be for you, for yeah. sure. It was absolutely meant to be.
2: And then Jelena's match, it was a rain delay. So it went on and on and on. And two days. And we started off on the graveyard court. Mm. And... The second rain delay, I won six one and then I was down five one. And we went into the we were eating and no, I wasn't eating. I was eating a bar because I I thought I was going back in the court. And Yelena was eating this like big roast beef dinner with potatoes and she didn't think she was going back on the court. And I was like, what? And Alan Mills, who in my generation and the generation before me and before was, he was the referee, right? Yeah, of course. Wimbledon referee. You didn't mess with Alan Mills. So Alan Mills came up and was like, ladies, we are going to play. And Yelena's agent said, no, she's eating dinner. (laughs) I was like, you just told Alan Mills, no. And he goes, well, that's not possible. We're going to get court one ready. And they were like, no, we're not moving to court one because she was winning on court two, which was the graveyard, right? So I went over to Alan Mills and I said, is court one bigger than court two? (laughs) Being the 18-year-old I was, and I was a young 18-year-old. I was not a mature, you know, Emma Raducanu 18-year-old who's been around more you know i was
0: young and yeah, fun you know yeah
2: yeah it up. Yeah. and i told the truth i didn't hold anything back and i said well if it's bigger could i play on it <laughs> <laughs> because i had wanted to play on center but it's not like it is now where they give the women equal opportunities in 99, if you were still making a run, you could be on court four during Lisa Raymond match that should have been on at least court one. They would put all the men on there. Definitely. So I was on the back courts. And so it's not like it is now. And so he goes, well, Miss Stevenson, let me see what I can do. And so I said, okay, great, Mr. Mills. So he went back and he moved us to court one. Wow. And Elena had to go change and she was all upset and they were all the, her whole camp was upset. And my camp was my mom and Craig,
3: Yeah,
2: <laughs> that was my camp. And I still had no sponsor. And, um, I was in Adidas, sh- give me shoes, like from the swag bag of the Adidas house. They just gave me a pair of shoes and I wore a Nike hat on purpose because I wanted to let Nike know that they should have kept me. Mm. So I had a Nike hat on. you weren't
0: that immature 18 year old you were you knew exactly what you're doing.
2: (laughs) Just a little bit. So I wore my Nike hat. That's
0: right. And so
2: anyway, we went to court one and started pouring rain. So we finished it was too dark. We went back. That was kind of when the storm was brewing with the media, because a reporter had bought my birth certificate, which I didn't think was very polite. And they're all, everybody's nosy. Mm-hmm. So they're all wondering who my father was because it was just my mom and me. So
0: this was happening, that broke during Wimbledon as well. So you're getting all this. That
2: broke, af- so, and that broke after the quarterfinals. Yeah. But I'll give you a little story before then. A couple months before this same reporter was coming to my tournaments and trying to blackmail me and say, I knew who your daddy is. Mm-hmm. And I was like, who are you? And so my mom took care of him. Not in the mafia way, but she was like, <laughs> leave her alone. She's 18. Yeah. She's not even famous. So he was holding on to this for a couple months. Mm-hmm. So he came to Wimbledon and was holding on to it and watching how I would go all the way through. So the third round, Frank DeFord, who was an amazing journalist and knew my mom, came to my mom and said, look, we're protecting Alexandra because this is quite a run she's going to make. We all think she's going to make it. And we don't want her to be upset by what this guy is doing. Mm -hmm. And I won't name the guy's name, but I'll never forget his name. (laughs) And so they held him down, which would never happen in 2023, right? Mm -hmm. Because with social media, Twitter, everything is so fast, right? It would already be out. But in 99, it was before social media and journalists had integrity, most of them. And so they all kept him down and said, you can't let this young Mm. girl's life be changed yet. You have to let her finish her run. Mm. So he said, fine, I'll hold it unless she makes history. And so the history would be quarterfinals, the semis, no woman had ever done that, except for John McEnroe when he's a man, right? So no woman had ever done it. So that night was a little weird because it was, I wasn't, you know, the match wasn't over, but we had to discuss, what was gonna happen just in case. And then the tabloids, my mom had done a walkabout with them. Mm. And she had said she wanted me to marry a man and have babies and they had taken it the wrong way and then said she was against lesbians, which was so ridiculous because she never brought that up. And so that was a whole nother can of worms. Yeah,
0: you you were dealing with so much. I remember that whole fortnight. It was just like story after story.
2: It was a lot. And then in America, I didn't even know what was happening over there because I was in this little bubble in this house at Wimbledon. Mm-hmm. But really, that was my sanctuary. The boys, the family and my mom and Craig, we'd all eat there. And that was a little safe place. So that night um, I was down 5-1, took a bath, had to discuss, OK, if we go into media, I have to talk to you before this. My mom got on the phone with her friend who was a lawyer and they had to discuss all this stuff. Like, what if this guy releases my birth certificate? Like all this stuff you don't know was going on behind the scenes. And then I had to go out and play, right? But the best part was I got to play in court one. So that's all I cared about. It wasn't center court, but it was court one. And guess what? It was right after Tim Henman's match. So that means court one was going to be packed. Yep. And so I was very excited, even though I was down 5-1, I was like, let's go. This is going to be great. So Craig was giving me coaching advice. And what you learn, John, as a server is you always respect your coach. But if you disagree with your coach about if you should, if you're playing a set and you're down 5-1 and you're on grass and you're a big server, do you think you should break back, hold, break back, hold, break back, hold? Or would you just hit as hard as you can at 5-1, get your nerves out and serve first. The second one, right? Craig was like, okay, here we're going we're gonna to break back, hold, break back, hold, and come back and 5-all. And I was like, okay. And I didn't really want to get in discussion about it because I knew my plan and he wasn't going to sway my plan. So I just said, okay, it sounds good. And I went on the court. You went
0: rogue. I love it. I went
2: rogue. <laughs> I, I kind of do go rogue sometimes. So I went on the court, hit as hard as I could in that first game, lost it but I served first mm-hmm. and then I won 6-3 because I served first. Oh
0: man, what a great match. <laughs> Everyone go back and YouTube that match. I love this story today. Alexander Stevenson talking about Wimbledon. I love it. And then of course, this center court moment that you have, you know, it wasn't the result that you wanted. <laughs> well, I
2: got thumped by Lindsay Davenport, but she was but still brilliant tennis. And uh, so, come on, that was my ninth match. That was a lot of matches. And she was the ultimate professional and she knew how to play. And I was still finding my game and I didn't know how to handle the occasion and especially against Lindsay, because Lindsay, every time I played Lindsay, she killed me because she just would serve bigger and hit through the court better. And I just needed to figure out how to play her. And I never got the chance to actually do that, which I wish I could have, because she was such a great competitor, but every time. Like I knew if I played Lindsay, I was in trouble because she, yeah. she just out hit me every time. And she knew how to drill that ball.
0: One of the best all time. I'm a huge Lindsay Davenport fan. Absolutely.
2: She was hitting her serve spot so well that tournament. She deserved to win the championship and she just, her serving was off the charts that year.
0: I know we're talking about 1999, but you know, even talking about it now, congratulations. I mean, that's like a such a great run, such a legendary run from my very favorite Grand Slam. I mean, it was it was so fun. Yeah,
2: it was a it was great, but it's not the only thing I did. Which is no, we're gonna
0: talk about it. Let's keep going.
2: I know, let's keep but It's going. so funny because most people are just like, "Oh yeah, you just went to Wimbledon and that's it." No, like, let's,
0: it, it starts with 99 <laughs> and it's gonna keep going. So yeah, I do want to talk. We're on our next topic now because. We alluded to it a little bit, you know, the press comes out and, and we find out that uh, your father is Julius, Dr. J. Irving, Hall of Fame basketball player. Mm -hmm. And after Wimbledon, there was a lot, it was a firestorm. The media was relentless to you. You were being asked to do interviews, even after losses, they wanted you in that room. You know, they wanted to hear quotes from you. They wanted to talk to you because, you know, you were, you were great for tennis. It was just an identifiable story. And of course you have a very famous father. So a lot of things happened. You officially turned pro. You got your first paycheck after Wimbledon too, which was awesome. What a great first paycheck. My first paycheck <laughs> was at Bush Gardens in Tampa. That wasn't that fun.
2: Yeah, mine was pretty <laughs> fun. And I, but I had to tell UCLA I wasn't coming, which that was one of the goals. If I got to the semis or one Wimbledon, I wouldn't go to UCLA because hmm. I didn't sign with them until after Wimbledon. And I told them I was going to wait. And they were like, yeah, right. Ha ha. And Stella Sampras, I don't think to this day, forgives me. (laughs) Now, if if the rules were like they are now, I could have gone to UCLA and done both. Also true. But at the time, it was very hard. You had to choose professional. And when you do that, something like I did, and then you're 32 in the world, it's really hard to... Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, you
2: know, go to UCLA. And
0: of course, what was the aftermath of Wimbledon like for you? Because you were now a famous tennis player. People knew your name. (laughs) The press wanted to interview. Like I said, Nike signs a big deal with you. You're, you're dealing with all of this. And uh, of course, you're dealing with the world now knowing about your personal family business that you didn't come out with that somebody else came out with, and you're still a teenager. What, What were those next few months like for you after Wimbledon? I could imagine it was pretty hard to focus on tennis.
2: Well, it was difficult because I went in Alexander Stevenson and I've always been Alexander Stevenson. And then all of a sudden I was labeled Alexander Stevenson, daughter of Dr. J. Mm -hmm. And every single article you read, it was like tagline. And so that was hard because I have my own identity and then they wanted to switch my identity and always add him in no matter what. I was not a nepotism baby. Like I never got anything great or good from being Dr. J's daughter. Look, I did it all myself with my mom Mm -hmm. and I only got a lot of trouble from being it. And it was just a lot of negativity and I don't know if it was jealousy or just people wanted to put me down. It was just a lot. And luckily I have a good solid foundation and I believe in the Lord. And that Jesus will guide me and I have a good head on my shoulders because all that stuff, I mean, you look at what happened with Naomi Osaka and her mental health. Well, it was a lot thrown at me, Mm -hmm. but I had a really good foundation. I was able to get through it, but it was very tough. And that's probably why I lost the first nine months on the tour. I think it was nine months. It was a lot of tournaments. I did not win until I had to, I had to learn how to be a professional, but I had to learn how to handle the media and not let it affect me. Yeah, It affected my tennis and it affected who was coaching me. And it was kind of like being in a fishbowl. And then it affected how the women on the tour treated me and everybody wanted to beat me. You become the hunted instead of the hunter, which I was fine with, but it was like a lot because it was a lot of press that I didn't ask for. And then also, Hey, I wish I could have capitalized on it. Like now with all the tons of money they give now, but it was just a lot of press that was just a lot of writing and a lot of people's thoughts that weren't the right narrative. And I never said anything about it because I always felt you had to be polite and you had to give the interview. And you had to give them what you wanted to give them and you couldn't say anything negative. And looking back on it, it was very unfair on how I was treated. And especially being a female and a person of color, it was uh, it was it was definitely an interesting time.
0: Well, I think you've answered this question already because you have a fan on Instagram, Neloy 19. They ask, Do you feel like having a celebrity father like you did? was more helpful or more hurtful (laughs) for your tennis career. You just said it. You just asked that question. Yeah, it was
2: hurtful. Yeah. Because, you know, he he could have helped. He didn't help me. You know, everything that I did in my tennis career, I did with the will of God and the will of me and my mom. Mm -hmm. And the great people that I had around me also helped me. But the base of it, you know, I didn't have a father to help protect me. And I didn't have a father figure to take all the hits. And, mm-hmm. you know, my mom was treated, she was the white woman that was treated yeah. badly because she slept with a black athlete. And I know that's going to cause some controversy, but I'm going to say it because it's true. And it was very hurtful. And there's still feelings about it, but I've worked through it. I've had a shaman and he's Dr. Banco. He's great. Oh. Lots of prayers. And, you know, God has a plan for me. And that happened for a reason. And I still don't understand it because I feel like, I could have had a bigger career, but that's okay. It's just, it is what it is. And one day it'll all come to light. But yes, it was tough. And I was never a, a nepotism baby. That's for sure.
0: It's a crazy story. And you had everyone asking about it. Even Barbara Walters, we talked about that too, which was so cool. I mean, come on, you're, you're interviewed on a primetime special by Barbara Walters. This
2: is probably the most I've talked about anything in in the background or behind the scenes is with you, really.
0: And I thank you. And I thank you for that. Oh. No, it's great. You know, I I also had a, a single mother who raised me too. So I understand a little bit. I had an athlete father too. It was very strange. And I, I, your story was always, um, it resonated with me and the connection I have with my mother is very strong because you know, it, it, that's, that's your person. That's your person who's going to get you through. And and you got to the next level. So there's another layer of gratitude that you probably have too. And those nights of, you know, coming back from three hour drives from LA and, and, you know, it's like the story today is great. You know, there's a lot of understanding why your mother and you were so close. And yeah, maybe a lot of people have asked that question over the years, you know, oh wow, you guys are still so very close.
2: Yeah. And it's because, you know, she put in the work with me and without my mom, I wouldn't be who I am today. And I don't mind saying that because it's true because she was in the trenches when the phone wasn't ringing. She was right there saying, don't worry. You know, that's saying when you're winning, the phone rings when you're not. It doesn't ring. Well, now it's like text messages, right? So you get it's
0: text messages now. Yeah, You don't
2: get text. It's like crickets when you lose, right? <laughs> so you really know who <laughs> your friends are and your family. Is. It's
0: true. It, your journey continues for sure. But I mean, hopefully there's some, um, you know, there's some peace and shaman has helped and maybe you know the <laughs> prayers you know yes. we're, we're, we're thinking positive thoughts you know yeah. it's always tough you know relationships are complicated you know parental relationships are even more complicated so i get it so i completely exactly. understand we're gonna move on a, a few a few years but before we do we have a, another fan question at hyrax 57 on instagram wants to know we're talking about fame in general because you know those couple years you were you were everywhere and you were even in video games they wondered Did you ever play as yourself in the video games on Sega Sports Tennis or WTA Tour Tennis?
2: Well, I did play as myself. Yes, I did. And I still have the video game.
0: Yes, there you go. Uh,
2: Yeah, I mean, come on. If you're in a video game, you have to play as yourself. That's pretty damn
0: cool. That's pretty damn cool. Yeah,
2: it was very cool.
0: All right, we're skipping ahead a couple years. We're good. Yeah, that's fun. I I played that game as a kid. We're going to go talk 2002 now. For all the success you had in 1999, you had an amazing 2002 season. It seemed like you had adjusted to the expectations and you were ready to make your big breakthrough. You'd have the most consistent season of your career. You'd make the quarters in Tokyo and in Zurich, two WTA finals at events in Memphis and in Linz. We just talked about that that crazy Memphis final against Lisa Raymond. I mean, that was another big, big match. You'd ultimately reach number 18 in the world that year. Can we talk about 2002 for a minute? What do you think it was about 2002 that brought out the best tennis in your career? Did you just feel settled now? You were, you knew how to be a professional and it just kind of everything came together.
3: Yeah.
2: I, I'd figure it out how to travel and how to stay healthy. And I had a secret weapon named Hughes LeVadier. And we call him Oogie. Oogie.
0: Who's Oogie? Yes,
2: Oogie. So Oogie is from Quebec, and he lives in a little town outside of Quebec. And I met him at Quebec City, and I used him as a hitter. And he was very smart, and he was just fun. And he'd be like, hmm, and just very, like, French Quebecois, right? And just hilarious. And he went to college in Louisiana and he loved America. He still loves America. And so Oogie, I asked him to travel with me to the indoor season because I did pretty well in Quebec. I forget what I got to and I liked him. And he was simple, no frills. And we did game plans every night. And then we drill, and then we work out what we were doing. Mm. And he gave me structure and a plan on how to play my big game. And that was one of the reasons like I did wells because I finally figured out how to use all my tools. Cause I had a lot of tools and I had to put them together. And So Oogie helped me do that. And we had our most success that indoor our season. I think that's when I won the doubles tournament with Serena and I think I beat five top 10 players or-
0: Exactly. Let's start with that doubles title with Serena because you'd win the doubles event in Leipzig, Germany that year with Serena Williams and Fun fact, everybody listening, it's the only doubles title that Serena ever won with someone other than Venus. And she played with iconic people. She just played with Wozniacki and Jabor and all these great players. That is so cool. What do you remember from that title run in Germany with Serena <laughs> Williams? Come on. That's so cool.
2: I remember I had just flown over and I was playing qualies and I lost to Jeanette Husarova. Okay. And it was a terrible match and I was so upset. And I was crying and Serena's like, let's play doubles.
0: Okay. So that was, that's how it started. I was going to ask, how did, how did it just manifest?
2: She was like, let's play doubles. She wanted to play doubles and Venus wanted to play with me in Moscow. So I was going to play with Serena in Leipzig and Venus in Moscow. That was like going to be our one, two thing in the indoor season. And so I think we practiced once. We played Henin and Bovina, and Serena was like so mad because Bovina kept trying to hit her. If I'd miss a serve, Bovina would take the ball and like rip it at Serena. And Serena's like, "What are you doing?" So, and Henin, you know, Serena and Henin had their issues. Yeah, so, yes. Yeah, so we were not going down in that match.
3: <laughs> I love it.
2: Serena told me a couple of things, and I was like, "What? No way!" And I won't tell you the things she told me. And she goes, okay, next ball you take, take your forehand. Bovina's going to serve it to your, I was playing deuce side. Take it and rip it line. Just rip it line. And I was like, okay. So I must have hit this forehand like 150 miles an hour. I just ripped it. And Justine was standing at the net. And she just saw this ball come at her. And I didn't aim at her. I just aimed line and she happened to be in the oh way. Gosh. she turned her head instead of ducking and the ball hit her in the head. Oh my gosh. Off her head and she went down and Serena turned around and was like, I didn't tell you to kill her. Like you told me to go line. Oh my god. And Justine's not that tall, right? So, you know, I thought she'd move out of the way. And it just kind of just it happens in doubles. You're like a deer in headlights, right? Yeah. So she just got stuck in this huge foreign was coming at her. And I apologize. But after that, then we won. And then the number one doubles players in the world, we I think we played in the finals.
0: Yeah, you did. Yeah, yeah. Carlos Suarez. Yeah.
2: They would not come into the net. <laughs> they would not come in. So then we won the
3: tournament.
0: You got your title. You got your title.
3: Yeah, I got the
0: title. You were able to to do the coverage for USPN. You know, you, you got to see uh, Serena's swan song as well. Well, I wondered real quick, since you had a relationship with her, what were your thoughts on Serena and the legacy she had for the game? I mean, that was such a great a great goodbye we just had at the U.S. Open. I mean, it's only in Serena fashion does she go out with as dramatic.
2: (laughs) Well, the UFC certainly rolled out the red carpet every time. I'm not sure I like that they were trying to ice out the opponents with the goodbye video every match, but it was for the fans, so I understood it. Well, you know what? She's a legend, and she's won 23, and it doesn't matter what she does at all anymore. She's Serena. She's cemented herself. But what it took her to get there was not easy. And we can't forget that she had to win to have a voice and to speak out and to be herself yep. and to be able to be Serena. And she's done such a great job at that. But she also, you know, it was not easy for her. And she finally admitted it when she said she always had a target on her back. And, yep. and she finally admitted that. And she hasn't admitted it ever. And I like that she did that. Interesting. And you know, she didn't retire officially, so you never know. You never know. I feel like we're going to see her again. You do?
0: You feel that? You really do?
2: I don't know. I just feel like I don't know. I'm not going to say anything where she's coming back. I don't know. She's she's not officially retired. She didn't check the box.
0: Why not? Don't check the box. If you still have it, hey, keep going. So
2: you never know and she can do whatever she wants. And what how she's built her legacy has been very impressive and yeah. Jill Smoller and what she's done with Jill has Mm -hmm. been huge. Yeah. But it took a while. You know, there are a lot of blondes ahead of her that got a lot of stuff before she did. And she won a lot more than they ever did. So
0: She did. You played her once in Indian Wells. You went three sets. Do you remember that one? That was... uh... Uh (laughs)
2: <laughs> of course I remember that match.
0: That's a fun match.
2: What was it? 7-6 in the third? Yep. It was
0: a crazy match. If you had to choose, would you take that win against Serena in Indian Wells or that win against Lisa Raymond in Memphis? Would you rather say, I have a win against Serena in your career or take the title?
2: No, I would take the tournament. Okay,
0: there we go. <laughs> there we go.
2: Competitor, you take the tournament win.
0: Yeah, for sure. Why not? If I
2: take that win and I take the win. I would take Linz against Hennett because then that was the two tournaments.
0: I know. Now we're being greedy. I love it. I love that you're being greedy. That's good.
2: Like forget Serena. And now, if you said if I was playing Serena in the finals, then I would have taken that win. But I think it's only the For fourth sure. round.
0: I get it. But a lot of players still to this day, they're like, you know, I don't care. I beat Serena one time. Yeah. You know, I am. but
2: see, I look at her differently. I look at her. I knew her at eight.
0: Yeah, you had a relationship.
2: Yeah, we had a relationship and I look at her as a person and I knew what she looked at, get eight and acted like all those years. And yeah, we lost touch for a while when I got injured, but I still know the authentic original Serena Venus. So I just look at it a different lens.
0: Well, you may not have beaten Serena, but you did beat a (laughs) lot, a lot of great players, somebody you had a very positive head to head against Uh, another Hall of Famer. Let's talk about Jennifer Capriati, because that year in 2002. Let's talk about this matchup. You'd end up winning the head-to-head 3-2 against Capriati. And all three wins came in 2002. Yeah. It was just like every draw, it was like Capriati-Stevenson, Capriati-Stevenson, Capriati-Stevenson. I know.
3: I I always ran
2: into her. She was very upset that I was running into her. I mean, you
0: probably weren't looking at draws until 2002. And you're like, where's Capriati in the draw?
2: Where's (laughs) Where's Jennifer? Well, one of the tournaments, one of the indoor tournaments, her dad actually brought my rackets over for me. And then I beat her with those rackets. So Jennifer was so mad at me. And I was like, sorry, but you know, Jennifer was, she's a great person. And I remember playing an exhibition with her in Japan and I was 15 and mm. she was just like, the tour is tough. You need to be ready. And, you know, she had, she did not have it easy. And I was proud of her that she got it together and she was able to win the grand slams. Cause that meant a lot. And yeah, yeah I, I always liked playing Jennifer. I liked hitting with her. We played doubles one year. That was quite funny. Where was
0: that? Yeah. What's that story?
2: had yeah, It was open. I was, uh, maybe I was 19. It was like my second year on tour. So Jennifer had had a very fun night with Leonardo DiCaprio.
0: As one does, you know.
2: <laughs> as one does, right? I mean, come on, she's Jennifer. And so she came out the next day and, you're like, it's going to be a tough one. And I was like, why? And she goes, well, I was out with Leo. And I went, as in DiCaprio? And she's like, yes. And I said, well, tell me about that. Who cares about the doubles match? And so, anyway, we had to play. I don't even know who we played, yeah. but it was rough. And she's like, can you just play the whole court for me? And I said, of course, you went out with Leonardo DiCaprio.
0: That's <laughs> so, great. Oh, I love that story.
2: That was when Jennifer was having her fun. Before she got it together and got serious and won the Grand Slams. And won the Grand Slams. Still finding her way. Yeah. But hey, if Leonardo DiCaprio asks you out, you go. I
0: mean, yeah, I guess I'm, yeah, I'd go. Let's go. I'm, a, <laughs> I mean, I'm not his type. I'm not his type.
2: I don't know. I don't know about now, but this is like Titanic. Oh, well, Leo. then
0: now. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
2: We I mean, teased out and he was still hot.
0: Aside from Jennifer, who, again, you played so great. I don't know. It always brought out your best tennis. I mean, you're. Well,
2: see Jennifer had a very good slice serve, but her slice serve went right to my forehand.
0: There you go. I mean, you beat the number one player in the world that happened. You know, it, she was.
2: But that helped.
0: Yeah. Me. She's in Fildersad. You get a win over the world number one, an indoor event in, in Fildersad, Germany, which was so cool. Can we talk about some of your other wins that year? Because it was such a great year. I want to talk about, I must say, when I think of my favorite Alexander Stevenson moment, it's getting to that final in Linz in 2002 because to get there, you had to beat WTA royalty. You know, you had to beat Conchita Martinez, yeah. Anastasia Mesquina Jennifer Capriati, and then Daniela that draw. That's the draw. I mean- Wait.
2: Got one more. Arantxa sanchez Vicario. Didn't I play her that year? Too? You beat
0: her earlier that year. Oh, at okay, another tournament. earlier. So okay, I forgot. All the wins just went together. <laughs> it was just so many top 20 wins that no, year. No,
2: but that, that draw was rough. <laughs> yeah,
0: that's a rough draw. And then you play Hinton in the final, which is crazy. After 2002, you'd continue to play on tour. You'd have shoulder surgery in 2003. You'd come back. You'd continue to play pro events. And as we mentioned earlier, you played your first event. In 1996, and you've played a pro event in 23 consecutive years. I mean, that is. Wow. That's not bad. That's that's amazing. <laughs> that is the love of the game. When we talk about that,
2: I like how you look at it that way. That was that's pretty good. And who
0: knows? You told me, you know, you're not officially retired, so there could be more tennis. Well,
2: I didn't check the box. You didn't check I, the box. You no, know, I asked the um, the guy that runs the exhibition at Wimbledon. You saw it, where all the players come back, yep. and I said, could I be included? Because I didn't get an. I would think I would get an invitation, right? I didn't get invited. So I emailed him and said, why didn't I get invited? He goes, well, you're not retired. And I said, I didn't think you needed to be retired. He goes, well, you have to check the box. And I said, oh, well, I'm not checking the box yet.
0: Not for that. Not for that. Yeah. Right. No,
2: not to play in a legend. (laughs) So I feel like this year I'm going to email him and say, I still haven't checked the box, but you know what? McEnroe told me he didn't check the box. All right. John McEnroe told me he didn't check the box and he got to play. I got to research this. We got to play. It's hard, John, when you don't get to finish on your terms.
0: Yeah. So I want to ask because a lot of fans wrote in and said, you know, they they've heard that you haven't checked the box. And again, you love tennis so much. You continue to to live out your passion and live out your dreams and play in a lot of these small cities. And just because you know what? You know how to do it. Right. So you have to get the momentum. You got to keep playing. You got to you got to play those events to do it. What would it take for you to come back and put that effort in? Well, and-
2: it'd take a big uh, money guy. So anybody that has money out there would sponsor me for two okay. years. But, you know... What are you saying
0: right now? If someone out there sponsors you. You're, you're back at it every single day training. Yeah, I
2: would training. go all in. Okay. But, you know, you have to train right. Mm-hmm. I am a certain age. You have to pick and choose. And the tour is difficult now. It's not like it was where it was easier to get to tournaments. So it's not so easy if you look at it. Okay, Venus is playing. Well, she's getting wild cards, right? Because she's Venus, as she should. Mm -hmm. But to get back, you'd have to go and play a lot of little tournaments around the world. And the point system is it gonna work for you? It's it's difficult. Yeah. So yeah, in an ideal world of utopia where everything went well and I could have two more years, mm-hmm. I would take it in a second. I would not hesitate. I'm healthy, okay. I'm strong, I would take it. But in reality, it's a very tough road to get back when you don't have support. Mm-hmm. And it's hard, but hey, doubles, doubles could happen. There's doubles players. Definitely, I wasn't planning on stopping and doing coaching in 2019. I wasn't planning on that. But then COVID happened and that, you know, it shut everybody down. So it, it yeah. took people different ways. I'm sure Roger Federer didn't want to stop playing at the Labor Cup. That wasn't his plan. It affected everybody. Everybody around the world, it affected some way. So I'm blessed that I'm healthy. And that I'm still able to play and hit and I don't have any injuries. I had that big injury and that just took me a long time. And I think I I got to like 200. That was my highest after the shoulder. Yeah. I kind of did that all myself, like just on the road and playing these small tournaments. It's not easy. So when you have these kids say, I want to be a professional, you're like, okay, but you need to know what it takes. (laughs)
0: Yeah. So if you do play pro tennis again, is it, is it for you? Is it for fans? Is it for money? Is it for glory? No.
2: If I played, it would be for me to say, I got to finish the way I wanted to. And I didn't have to stop because of circumstances. And I think that would be the best ideal way. But you know what, a lot of athletes have to stop because of circumstances and you have to make peace with it. And so I'm at the stage now where the path is becoming smaller and smaller yeah. to go on the tour, but I'm still not okay with it, but I'm getting better with it. There you go. That's what I'm going to say, but I'm still not checking that Haven't box. Haven't
0: checked the box. No. <laughs> well, we are starting to wrap up today with Alexander Stevenson, but you have a big fan on Twitter, Alex, um, Hydro Tennis, and they say, I met you at an event in Midland, Michigan years ago, and I've been a big fan of yours ever since. What would you say has been the biggest misconception of Alexander Stevenson from over the past 25 years?
2: Thank you, Hydro Tennis, for the question. If I saw your face, I would remember you. (laughs) I think the biggest misconception would be is that I'm a diva and I'm not a nice person. I think somehow that got out that I'm a diva. And it's maybe because I kept to myself and I I don't follow the leader. I kind of like to mm-hmm. do my own thing. And one player came up to me and was like, oh, this one person told me, and this was a USTA person, told me you're a diva and you, I shouldn't hit with you and you're really difficult. And you're so nice. And I don't know why they said that. And I was like, I was really hurt by that because I'm really nice. And Martina Hingis used to like to hit with me (laughs) because I had a good ball. But, you know, there is a lot around me the first five years on tour from the media. And they
0: paint a picture for you. It's hard to get out of that. Yeah. Yeah. And
2: my goal is to create my narrative. That's the truth. Mm -hmm. And that's one of my goals in the next couple of years is to create my own narrative about the truth and not have I mean, now the media is not interested, but that past stuff still comes around.
0: Uh, Fascinating. You know, we're talking, let's talk about life off court now as we, as we wrap up. And Alexander, you've been an analyst for ESPN since 2019. You're part of a superstar team over there at ESPN. Lots of experience. Was it nerve wracking those first couple of times on air? It's hard for tennis players just because it's a different kind of job, but yeah, you can talk about it, but it's different. What was, were those first couple of times kind of fun or was it just like,
2: yeah, it was Look, it was very interesting how it came about. And I kind of just ended up at the U.S. Open after being nowhere. So I kind of just get dropped like out of space. And everybody's like, what the heck? Is
0: that Alexander Stevenson? Yeah, exactly. (laughs)
2: Yeah, And so I said, "Okay, this is a great challenge. I've been given a opportunity. I've been given an open door to walk through and to try out. And if I did well, I could go to the round of 16. Mm -hmm. And so I looked at it as this is an amazing opportunity that God had brought me. And I was going to kill it no matter what. And I was going to be smart. I was going to study the game. I was going to study every note I could. And I was going to research everything. And I was going to be kind to every single player, no matter what. Even if they weren't nice to me in my career, I was going to be nice to them because they're players. And I wanted a positive voice on air about the game of tennis and how hard everybody worked. Yeah,
0: exactly. Have you had any blooper moments, Alex? Have you had anything uh, happen on the air the past couple of years? Anything fun that you remembered?
2: Yeah, I think I, I said the wrong thing like twice. I mean, you mess up. Oh, I, this is the biggest blooper. But it was so funny because my old coach, Pete Fisher, texted me. So I was talking about Djokovic with Brad Gilbert, right? Brad Gilbert. And he's like a big guy in my book. And I've read his book and I've always looked up to Brad. And so it was so important to me to show him that I was smart. So, and Darren Cahill so inside to show, cause they're coaches, right? And I'm, and you learn from the best. So you watch and you learn from them. And so I was on with Brad talking about Djokovic and I go, he's the, Epitome of something, and I meant epitome. Yeah, yeah. I was so tired because I think I don't know it was like day eight or not. Did you do all of my? This was, and I cannot believe that I said epitome. So I immediately got a text from my mother, who's a journalist (laughs) and went to journalism school and prides herself on words. And then Pete Fisher, who's also like Mensa and a doctor, and he was like, "Do you, you do know?" It is not epitome. And I was like, what? I didn't even remember it because I was so tired. Oh my gosh. Because after a while, you stay late. It's US Open, you know, 2 a.m., 12 a.m. Yeah. And, and so, anyway, that was my big blooper. It's so funny. And I couldn't fix it because it was too late because it's live TV.
0: <laughs> so, to recap, we'll be seeing you on ESPN, possibly a comeback, maybe writing a book. And congrats on the podcast, Alex, serving aces with Alexander Stevenson. I love it. So, this is really exciting. We're going to be seeing Alexander Stevenson a
2: lot of fun,
0: right? What about coaching? You know, we're talking about, we're finishing up with Alexandra today. Would you consider coaching one day if, if someone were to come out on tour and, and say maybe somebody, you mentioned Emma Raducanu. Let's just use this for an example. You've been in her shoes. You've seen, you know, th- this amazing run that she won on the U.S. Open. I mean, you, you know what it feels like to have the entire world kind of pointing at you and saying, okay, what's next? And after, after that U.S. Open run, you know, there was a lot of finger pointing. It, or why aren't you winning this tournament? Why aren't you winning that one? And it takes a minute to adjust. Yeah. If an opportunity like that were to come your way, is that something that interests you at all, or or that's not your journey right now?
2: Well, I don't know. I mean, I never really thought about because you know, especially in women's tennis, there's so many male coaches and it's very male centric. And I feel like there could be female voices. There are. I mean, Conchita Martinez. Yeah,
0: Renee Stubbs for sure. Right
2: subs and but that's two people john there needs mm-hmm. to be more and well, there
0: needs to be maybe an alexandra who knows
2: maybe i know hey pam shriver's uh advising donna beckett to- uh,
0: i love that i love that uh,
2: cool. i think you know if it was the right player and it, was, it could be interesting i'm not opposed to it it's not easy but i i like coaching mm-hmm. yeah you, there's a lot of emotions in women's tennis and i think I'd be able to help with that too cuz I was playing women's tennis, but also maybe a male player that could be fun. I just think in tennis it would be nice to have more female voices and I know they're trying to push that, yeah. but it's it's a long road to get to. I won't say no, it could be interesting. I I'd also like to do more television and entertainment, but you you don't know what's going to be put in front of you, so you can't ever say no. Unless you see it, right? You have to try anything that you're offered.
0: We have commentating. We have a podcast. There's so many things. Well,
2: you're you're making me sound super exciting and not boring. So I'm, I love you, John. You've got
0: a lot of things cooking.
2: Cooking. We're I cooking in say, the kitchen. things cooking.
0: <laughs> Our last question today, Alexander, comes from a fan of yours on Facebook, Katrina Travis. And she asks, Alexander, when fans think back and hear the name Alexander Stevenson, what are you hoping tennis fans remember you for?
2: I think I hope they remember me for if if they remember me. Thanks, Katrina. I I feel like that I didn't give up. I kept trying. And, you know, I was a great player. I just didn't have the opportunity to keep going at the time I got injured. I I feel like that because I knew how to play the game of tennis. I still know how to play the game of tennis. And my game was built i believe to win a grand slam i just didn't get the opportunity and i think that's why i have such a different lens to other people and maybe they don't get me but that's okay because i look at the game a certain way like i was close but i didn't quite get there but that's all right it didn't happen for me so i just think that I tried, I didn't give up, and I I had a beautiful game from when I was on TV and on the tour. It was fun to watch. It was exciting. It was it was different at that time. The old school with the new school mixed in, and that's why I was exciting to watch because it what it was fun tennis and it was how you'd want the game to be played.
0: Definitely, definitely, absolutely. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Wow, this was so much fun today. I can't thank our guest, Alexander Stevenson, enough for joining me today. I highly recommend you follow Alexandra on her tennis journey on social media. You can follow her on Instagram at Alexandra Stevenson. And the podcast is called Serving Aces with Alexandra Stevenson. Thank you so much, Alexandra.
2: Thank you, John.
0: While you're on Instagram, after you've followed Alexandra, shoot me a DM at John Garica. Let me know who you're a big fan of and who you'd like to hear on an upcoming show. And also don't forget to follow us at Fantastic Tennis Pod or on Twitter at Fantennis Pod. My name is John Garica and thank you for listening. This has been fantastic.